were quick at killing. It did not take them very long, and they said nothing while they were doing it. They killed all 26. I was horrified. I knew all these people. They were my family, my friends, my neighbors. When they finished, I slipped away and went to my home, where I sat trembling all over. It was Christmas Day, 25th December 2008. Christmas, the Feast of Hearts. But right here and now, it was anything but Christmas-like and heartwarming. The place, the northern Congo, on the central African continent, might also not be a place we in the West usually associate with Christmas dinner and Christmas trees. And instead of snow, the temperature was in the 20s degrees Celsius, and Christmas trees was replaced by fan palms up to 6 to 7 meters high. The 72-year-old man who had just escaped the brutal massacre described above was now undergoing treatment at the local hospital shortly after. He was one of the few villagers who escaped what would later be named the 2008 Christmas Massacre during the Christmas days. It was a series of heinous terrorist attacks perpetrated on innocent civilians by an organization that claimed to be fighting in the name of the Christian faith. An organization which, especially during the Christmas days, was supposed to fight for benevolence, but which instead cunningly took advantage of the locals being gathered to celebrate the holiday. To kill as many people as possible. You are listening to Terror Talks, a podcast about some of the most spectacular terrorist attacks in history. My name is Natasha Ingholm, and I'm a journalist and an MA in Middle Eastern Studies based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Through my profession and my work, I have dealt with terrorism and radicalization for a long time. In this podcast, I tell stories about terrorist attacks worldwide. I'm trying to understand why and how people become radicalized and what role history plays in their path to terrorism. About people who will sacrifice their own lives or the lives of others for a political, economic, religious or social goal. Who was behind it? Who did they want to hit? And why? Before you start listening, I must warn you that the podcast contains descriptions and details that can be violent and are unsuitable for especially small children and people who are affected by hearing about murder and violence. Today's episode has been one of those extra difficult to research. Firstly, because it deals with a conflict so far away from our daily life and our media in the West. It affects people who, in addition to being our fellow human beings, live so far away and in such a different way that it can be more challenging to identify with than a victim in, for example, France or the United States. Secondly, it has been difficult to put faces to the victims. After terrorist attacks in the West, the victims are often identified by name, age, and possibly a background story with small anecdotes from family and friends. The terrorist attack is thoroughly investigated, and there is access to survivors and witnesses 
digital data, surveillance cameras, etc. Journalists can access professional interpreters who can speak to witnesses and translate material. We are often left as witnesses to a tragic yet rounded story where the perpetrators may even be apprehended, accused and convicted in a trial. I didn't have access to all of that in today's episode. The journalistic articles have often been superficial and factual, or they have taken their point of departure from the overall conflict and its opponents instead of the concrete attack. The more personal accounts are based on reports from human rights organizations which have anonymized the sources, mostly to protect them. But these stories are also important to tell. Whether terror takes place in Nice, Oklahoma or in Africa, there are still several common features. There are two or more unscrupulous parties in the conflict. There are the recruited and radicalized foot soldiers. And then there are not least the innocent victims. In today's episode, we are going back 15 years in history to an area in the heart of the African continent. We are going to travel to two countries. The Democratic Republic of the Congo has over 2 million square kilometers, the size of Western Europe. Around 96 million citizens inhabit the country. This is where today's terrorist attack takes place. But we will also visit the slightly smaller neighboring country, Uganda, which borders the Democratic Republic of the Congo to the east. It is here that the main characters behind the attack have their roots. Uganda is approximately the size of Romania and has around 50 million inhabitants. The Congo and Uganda area has giant rainforests and fantastic wildlife, such as the magnificent mountain gorilla, both beautiful and breathtaking. But like many other countries in Africa, they are also countries that have a brutal and bloody history. Every episode, I preach my mantra about the importance of dwelling into history to understand terrorism and radicalization. Because I have never heard of people living happy and normal lives one day and become a terrorist the next. Many African countries are marked by past colonization by European powers and the borders that the Europeans quite literally drew through sand, rainforest, and not least, among the native Africans and the tribes and peoples they belong to. The West, Russia, and China's brutal pursuit of the many African natural resources is a constant source of power struggles and corruption among the Africans themselves. So while I won't go into detail about these factors in this episode, it's worth keeping in mind if you, as a listener, wonder about the senseless bloodshed. But now, back to today's episode. Terrorism can and does happen all over the world. And even in the bloodiest conflicts, some attacks are still considered brutal and shocking. Today we will meet a man who throughout his life has committed virtually all the crimes that one person can commit against another. He has done it under the cover of a religious ideology that has nothing to do with his reality, 
and he has done it through people who have been radicalized, not just out of conviction, but out of necessity or compulsion. Joseph Rayo Coney was born in 1964 in the village of Odek, east of the district capital city of Gulu in northern Uganda. His father was a farmer, but in addition, he was what is called a Catholic lay catechist. A layman's catechist is a Christian layman, that is, a person who does not have a formal education, such as a priest, but is at the head of a congregation. Joseph Coney's mother was also a farmer, but belonged to the Anglican Church, a hybrid between the Catholic and Lutheran churches. So Joseph Coney grew up in a very religious family. The family belonged to the Ancoli tribe, which has about 2 million members and resides in areas of northern Uganda. He was among the youngest in a group of six siblings and was described as a boy who was quick to resort to violence in disagreements with his siblings. Kone left school at the age of 15 without having obtained his final exam and he then worked as an altar boy until 1976. He married a woman named Sally and together they had a son. We now stop for a moment and jump back into history. Before I tell you more about Joseph Coney's life and the crimes he has committed, I want to give you listeners an insight into the historical circumstances that made it possible. Like so many other African countries, Uganda was colonized and was a so-called British protectorate from 1894 to 1961. In other words, a state which is formally independent but under the protection of another state. In reality, a convenient way for the so-called protector to explain away why the protector have taken away the area's influence over their own foreign policy, military and raw materials. Oh well. In 1962, Uganda became independent from Great Britain but as early as 1966, the Ugandan Prime Minister, Milton Obote, seized all power. In 1971, he was stripped of power when the infamous Idi Amin, whom many may know from the film The Last King of Scotland, committed a military coup d'etat and ruled as a brutal dictator for eight years. Between 100,000 and 300,000 people lost their lives in those years, and his reign of terror only ended in 1979, when forces from Tanzania invaded the country and forced Idi Amin to flee to Libya. Then followed some years of political turmoil. Former Prime Minister Milton Obote, from before Idi Amin, came back to power, his new reign is considered even worse than the time under Idi Amin. It led to a civil war between Obote and the National Resistance Army, abbreviated the NRA group, led by opposition politician Yuveri Museveni. In July 1985, 23 years after Uganda's independence, President Obote was again deposed by NRA leader Yuveri Museveni, who had won the war. 
the former government army led by Oboti had to flee to northern Uganda, which was still ravaged by conflict and civil war. So, after this brief overview of the tumultuous years after the independence, we now jump back to the story of Joseph Kony. We find ourselves in the year 1986, and Kony was 22 years old. Like his father, Kony had trained as a Catholic lay catechist and traditional healer in recent years. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, Kony belonged to the Akoli tribe. One of his relatives, the spirit medium Alice Lakina, fought in the late 1980s against NRA leader Yuveri Museveni, who was now in power in Uganda. She was head of a rebel group called the Holy Spirit Movement. And yes, I understand if you, as a listener, think that is a lot of people aspiring to power and rebel, because I sure do. But now we are at least at a point where one of this episode's key figures, Joseph Kony, really started to make a move. When and how exactly Kony began to interfere in the conflict in Uganda is unknown. But in 1987, Kony joined a faction of the Holy Spirit movement. When government troops wiped out the original faction in the capital Kampala, Kony proclaimed himself a prophet and became its leader. Leader of a movement that two years later changed its name to the infamous Lord's Resistance Movement, abbreviated the LRA. The LRA now got really successful because they received support from the government of Sudan. The Islamic Sudanese government wanted to retaliate against the Ugandan government because it supported the Christian rebels in southern Sudan, which borders Uganda and the Congo. Initially, the LRA fought against the repression of the authorities. But as the LAA supplies thinned, they began to plunder the local population and support turned to fear. Ideologically, the movement was a mixture of mysticism, Akolian nationalism, and heretical Christian fundamentalism. Kony also made himself a spokesperson for God, claiming he was a spirit medium visited by a multinational host of 13 spirits, including a Chinese phantom. Kony never officially stated a more specific goal for the LRA than getting rid of President Museveni and his government. In addition, he wanted to establish a state and a government based on the Bible's Ten Commandments. You know, those who say, among other things, that those shall not kill, those shall not steal, and those shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. However, Joseph Kony himself claimed that the LRA was fighting for the Ten Commandments and defended his actions by saying, Is it bad? It is not against human rights, and that commandment was not given by Joseph. It was not given by LRA. No, those commandments were given by God. Kony armed himself with prophecies he claimed he received from spirits who came to him in his dreams. He ordered his soldiers to attack villages and murder, kill, and maim. It ended up displacing about two million people. 
The LRA and Coney also became notorious for abducting and brainwashing children to become soldiers and slaves. Coney convinced the vulnerable miners that holy water made them immune to gunfire. Children who resisted or tried to escape were beaten to death by their peers. A 12-year-old boy who was abducted from his school in the town of Doro in the Congo in September 2008 and was freed three months later, told of his involuntary stay with the LRA. I cried so much after I was abducted, and they told me I was to become a soldier. I wanted to be in school. I didn't want to fight. They said to stop crying and not to think about home. But I thought about it every day. Girls abducted by the LRA were forced into so-called marriages with the soldiers. Personally, Coney took more than 50 female prisoners as his wives and is believed to have fathered 42 children. A 17-year-old girl, Florence, was abducted from the Central African Republic which was another of the countries in the area where the LRA committed the crimes. She told the NGO Human Rights Watch about her life as a forced wife. I was assigned to a commander. He spoke a different language than me, so we never spoke. He forced me to sleep with him whenever he wanted. If I resisted, he whipped me. Sometimes he even grabbed my neck and tried to strangle me. With the LRA, a man can only have one wife, and a woman can only be with one man. If they disobeyed this rule, they would be killed. Coney and the other high-level commanders were the exception. They could have many women. If I tried to talk to the other girls, they beat us and threatened to kill us. They thought we were plotting against them. A boy from the Central African Republic tried to escape, and they killed him with a blow to the head. I had to bury him. In 2005, three years before the Christmas massacres in the Congo, 1.6 million people were internally displaced in northern and eastern Uganda because of the conflict. The government of Uganda and Kony agreed several times to meet to negotiate a ceasefire in place, but Kony never showed up. In 2008, it prompted troops from former mortal enemies Uganda, the Congo and Sudan to launch a military campaign called Operation Lightning Thunder. The United States contributed intelligence, technology, planning and logistics, and together they were to track down and destroy LRA forces, locate persons kidnapped by the LRA, and capture or kill LRA leaders. The increase in LRA attacks on civilians for the coalition military campaign showed a pattern that would be repeated many times in the following years. And with the most disastrous consequences in the Christmas massacres in 2008, the pressure made Kony quietly move his troops from northern Uganda and Sudan into the Congo. Unfortunately, Operation Lightning Thunder encountered several obstacles which delayed it. It ultimately led to a series of heinous terrorist attacks on the local population in northern Congo that, even by the LRA's usual standards, were extraordinarily brutal. Hi, 
Hello, this is your host Natasha with an important announcement. I spend a lot of time researching, writing, and producing this podcast. And even though I love it, it's also a massive job for me as an only woman. Therefore, it would be a huge help if you gave the podcast a positive review of five stars wherever you listen. And also tell friends, colleagues, and family about it. That way, I can keep making episodes of the same high quality. Between Christmas Eve and Boxing Day 2008, 10 days after Operation Lightning Thunder began, the LRA carried out a series of coordinated massacres of civilians in at least three areas of the Congo. The LRA had quite deliberately waited for the Christmas holidays so they could do the greatest possible damage and increase the death toll. During these days, the villagers were gathered to celebrate Christmas. After the first attacks, others followed, which continued again and again. From the first attacks on Christmas Eve 2008 until 7 January 2009, the LRA killed at least 815 Congolese civilians and at least 50 Sudanese civilians. In the Christmas days alone, around 400 are believed to have been killed. In addition, 160 children were abducted from at least one of the areas. These terrorist attacks were subsequently named the Christmas Massacres. The LRA used the same disgusting tactics in all the villages. They gathered the residents and forced them to sing and call to the other residents who would come believing that there was a party. They surrounded the victims, tied them with wires or copper strips from bicycle wheels, tore off their clothes and beat them to death with blows to the head from large sticks, clubs, axes or machetes. They raped women and girls before smashing their skulls. They spared neither children nor babies. Of the few who survived, most suffered severe head injuries and escaped only because the assailants thought they were dead. One of the places the LRA attacked on Boxing Day morning was the village of Nagenwa. Here they killed 30 people. At least 19 victims were later found naked near a stream with their hands tied and their skulls smashed with axes or large wooden clubs. Many of the dead were children. A 53-year-old mother of four survived the attack when she fell under the bodies of other family members and the attackers thought she was dead. She said, I was at home with my brother and five of my cousins when the LRA came to our house. They immediately brought us all together and tied up the other six. They didn't tie me, I guess because I'm too old. One of the soldiers then went into the house and started to take all the clothes and other goods they could find. Then they came out and started the killing. The first person killed was my brother. They chopped his skull with an axe. Then they pulled me and one of my cousins to the side and hit my cousin with the axe. He fell down and I fell under him. The blood from his head ran onto me and the LRA thought I had already been killed. It all happened very quickly and soon the other six were all dead and the LRA left with their stolen goods. 
I was terrified and stayed in the same place under the bodies until 4 a.m. when I got enough strength to run into the bushes and hide. The same afternoon, approximately 300 kilometers away, another faction of the LRA attacked the village of Aliki. Roger, a 48-year-old man, had just enjoyed a Christmas dinner with his family and was now taking a nap in the shade outside his home. The noise awakened him and he saw two men in military uniform approaching him. One of them put out his hand to say hello and asked me how I was. I didn't recognize them, but before I could even respond, the other one swung at my head with a large piece of wood. He hit me twice very hard. I fell down and was bleeding from my head. I heard my wife screaming before I passed out. The attackers left Roger believing he was dead. His wife dragged her unconscious husband into the woods where she tried to stop the bleeding by wrapping his head in her skirt. I came to when I was lying in our hiding place and saw the LRA kill our neighbor and another man in the road. I kept thinking, who are these people? What have we done to them? Perhaps you are sitting as a listener and thinking, what was the purpose of the massacres? So, in my opinion, terror is always pointless. But if we assume that there was a purpose, we must try to get into the minds of the terrorists. In the case of Kony and the LRA, the only known goal was to overthrow the existing regime and introduce a fundamentalist Christian regime. However, I do not think that we should put so much value in Kony's claims of wanting to introduce a Christian rule based on the Ten Commandments. It seems more like a propaganda tool than a legitimate goal. Because, as I previously described, the LRA has, over many years, violated several of the commandments in the grossest way. According to the research, violence against civilians is neither irrational nor random. Violence against civilians is most often the result of strategic planning to get people to cooperate or increase the cost to adversaries of striking their civilian supporters. In this case, Kony was under pressure because the African states in the area had begun to cooperate and he was pressured to sign a ceasefire. And for a narcissist like Kony, who has spread death and terror for so long, I could reasonably suspect him of fearing what he was going to do next and what might happen to him. The LRA had been on the US list of terrorist organizations since 2001, and in 2015, Kony's forces were believed to be responsible for the deaths of 100,000 people and the abduction of at least 60,000 children. In addition, as mentioned, the LRA has committed outrageous abuses such as the rape of young girls and their kidnapping for use as sex slaves. After almost 30 years, however, the LRA was running into problems in the early 2010s. The support for Kony from former friends in Sudan and the exiled Ugandans was gone, and Kony faced charges of crimes against humanity at the International Criminal Court, the ICC, in The Hague. 
In 2017, the number of members of the LRA had dwindled to around just a hundred soldiers. Perhaps that is why the U.S. and Uganda decided in April 2017 that the LRA no longer posed a security threat to Uganda, and gave up on finding Kony. The German broadcaster Deutsche Welle reported the latest news about Kony in April 2022. According to their sources, Kony is hiding in the conflict-ridden Darfur region of Sudan. Today's story has been very different in many ways, further away from our safe everyday life, and has depicted a conflict that, as a Westerner, may be difficult to understand. But it is important to tell because it says something about the fact that terror can take many forms and takes place in even the most remote corners of the world. You have listened to Terror Talks, a podcast about terror and radicalization. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Natasha Ingholm, while John Lobb voiced the man in the story. Also, thank you to consultant and journalist Lars Wilber, who contributed with sparing and wise thoughts. You will find the episode sources in the show notes where you listen to your podcast. I would also appreciate it if you would give the podcast a positive review and rating and tell about it to family and friends interested in listening. I'm sorry to send you on a Christmas break with such a sad story, but unfortunately that is the starting point for this podcast. Terror Talks is taking a short Christmas break but will return on 11 January 2024. Here I talk about a terror attack that was called the attack of the century in the United States in the early 1900s but is barely mentioned in the history books today. Please also follow Terror Talk social media on Instagram and Facebook where you can see pictures from today's story. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. See you in 2024.